in which the state of both our empires and our queen's health made it difficult to conceive of either ever declining. Yet how close, I now can see, were the onsets of both those maladies. Was the nature of the crime we were summoned to investigate during that late summer a harbinger of those twin twilights? And was the queen's subsequent fascination with the matter an indication of some inner awareness of eternity's approach, of a desire to know what awaited her, when finally she cast off the burdens of a long and predominantly lonely rule, and was allowed to follow where her beloved consort had long since gone. I cannot say, nor may I give any greater clue than I already have as to the precise moment at which this case commenced. So great is my concern that the private history of the monarchy remain untainted by scandal or controversy. Reliable as its officers have always been, Cox's is ultimately but a bank, and should traitorous or merely thieving hands ever find themselves with entire power over its assets, who can say what use might be made of these secret accounts? As to the specific beginning of the affair, it took a form that had become familiar for me in those latter days of my association with Holmes. I entered the front door of our Baker Street residence one afternoon to be greeted by sonic evidence that something was— in a literal instance of Holmes' oft-repeated phrase, a foot. The house was reverberating with the sound of agitated pacing coming from the sitting-room on the floor above. It was a staccato, deliberate pounding, interrupted occasionally by another sound made by a violin, but hardly to be called music. The irregular bouncing of a taut bow off the instrument's strings, which produced a noise that might best be likened to a hoarse-voiced hungry cat. Stepping further inside, I determined at once to summon Mrs. Hudson and see what letter, note, or other communication had arrived that might have produced such obvious signs of cerebral activity in my friend. I soon ran almost headlong into our landlady, just outside the door of her own sitting-room. She was glaring up at the second-floor door from whence the cacophony was emanating, looking rather less alarmed than angry, perhaps even a little injured and although I was by no means surprised that Holmes was the source of her agitation, rather the reverse, in fact, I was taken aback when the kindly woman announced that she had no intention of serving tea that day, a restorative that I had been quite eagerly anticipating during my walk home from a day-long medical symposium. "'I am sorry, Doctor, but I warned him,' was Mrs. Hudson's contained but no less violent declaration. I stated quite clearly that if he continued in that vein, I would not utter a word to him for the rest of the day, and perhaps not for a few more days, much less serve him anything to eat. Why, my dear Mrs. Hansen, I replied, calling on the secret sympathy which existed between the two of us, who had suffered more under the sometimes cruel and always caustic force of Holmes's mercurial moods than had any other two people in the world. I would not urge you to spend a minute more in the man's company, if he is indeed in one of his offensive humours. But won't you tell me what particularly he has done to upset you so? Tempted to speak at greater length, the proud lady finally said only, What is laughable to some, Dr. Watson, is not so to all. That is all I will say, for doubtless he will explain the rest himself. Folding her arms, she allowed her spirited eyes to roll upward, indicating that I should go up. I knew well enough to follow the directive, for Mrs. Hudson could be a truly unbending personality, 
a fact that Holmes and I sometimes bemoaned, but for which we had more often had reason to be immensely grateful. Taking the stairs to the sitting-room quickly, I formed a mental picture of the disarray that must lie within, for it was Holmes's irregularity of habits and periods of something suspiciously close to slovenliness that most often produced objection from our landlady. I was surprised then to find that all was neatness and calm when I entered, and to further see my friend's wiry but evidently vigorous and acceptably attired silhouette pacing by the windows that looked out onto Baker Street below. He had his violin beneath his chin, but was, as I suspected, barely aware of what he was doing with it. Mrs. Hudson, I really do not know what I can do beyond offering my apologies, Holmes called through the doorway as I opened it. Nodding once at me quickly with an equally brief smile, which indicated that he had indeed been up to some tormenting mischief, he continued in this vein. If you can recommend any other right of contrition, I shall be happy to undertake it, so long as it is within the parameters of reason. Dr. Watson, will you please inform Mr. Holmes that he may try all he likes? The thin but decisive voice rose from below without hesitation but that he'll have no service from me today, and I know that service is his sole reason for trying to make amends. Holmes raised his shoulders at me and indicated the door with another nod of his sharp chin, directing me to close it. We shall be left to our own devices for tea, I fear, Watson, he said, as soon as I had closed the portal. Laying down his violin and bow and disappearing for a moment into the adjoining chamber, he returned with a large chemical beaker set in a stand, as well as a spirit burner. And, far more disturbingly, for tobacco. Have you any? I've smoked the last of my reserves while considering this most remarkable communication. He picked a sheet of telegraph paper up off the table on which he had placed the beaker and burner, waving the message in my direction with one hand as he struck a match with the other, which arrived not two hours ago. Our landlady, as you have heard, refuses to perform even so simple a service as an errand. I laid hold of the document, asking, Holmes, really, what have you done to distress the poor woman to such an extent? I've rarely seen her so angry. In a moment, Holmes replied, as he filled the chemical beaker with water from a nearby pitcher. Give that telegram your full attention for now. He finally succeeded in producing a healthy ignition of the spirit wick beneath the beaker, after which he glanced about the place. I once secreted a pack of biscuits, he mused, on his way to fetch a mahogany tea box and two rather dubious-looking cups and saucers, against just such an eventuality. But where they might be, or in what condition we might find them, I dare not conjecture. From the agitated manner in which he continued to speak and to dart about our various rooms, seeking out such apparently exotic paraphernalia as spoons, one might justly have questioned whether the preparation of his own tea did not present Sherlock Holmes with a greater challenge than most of his scientific and investigative undertakings. But I was by now paying little attention to him, so intriguing was the communication that I held in my hand. When Holmes barked, Tobacco, Watson! I did manage to produce a pouch from my pocket, but I then sank into a nearby chair, ever more oblivious to my friend's incessant commentary. The message had originated in the telegraph office of the Aberdeen Railway Station, and was composed in such a manner that it would likely have been taken as a mundane or even a nonsensical collection of comments 
by both the Scots operator who dispatched it and his English counterpart who received it in London. Use done a special one at number eight Pall Mall. The sun burns too hot, the sky fills with familiar eagles. Read McKay and Sinclair. Complete works. Keep Mr. Webley close. Have your palm read for protection. A pair of berths is reserved on the Caledonia. My old crafter will pull alongside at quarantine. I could not pretend to make complete sense of the entire thing, particularly given the increasing distraction of Holmes knocking about the room looking for the mythical biscuits, all the while erupting with complaints at the mildness of my tobacco. But one initial guess seemed worth hazarding. Your brother? Bravo, Watson, said Holmes merrily. Mycroft's rather heavy-handed concealment of his name may be excused by the messenger's office of origin. Only in Scotland would a reference to an old crafter go unnoticed, and only in a message emanating from that country would the reference go unremarked by prying eyes or listening ears. Ears? I repeated, confused. Certainly, Watson. Surely you recall that British telegraphy lines have been vulnerable to electronic eavesdropping, at the very least since that rather unseemly business concerning our friend Milverton, who numbered such a technique among his methods of collecting information concerning those he intended to blackmail, although we only determined as much after you had written your account of the matter. He removed his pipe and stared down his long nose at it. I don't wonder if you have forgotten so important a point, even momentarily, given what must be the appallingly low content of nicotine in this effete tobacco of yours. However, 